The covenant that God made with Abraham was renewed with his son Isaac. Genesis 26.3 says to Isaac, To you and to your descendants I will give all the lands and I will fulfill the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. Then to Isaac's son Jacob, the covenant was again confirmed in Genesis 28.13. I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your descendants, and your descendants shall be like the dust of the earth. And probably when Jacob heard that reconfirmed covenant, he didn't think that he would go into Egypt and that for 400 years his descendants would languish under the miseries and the slavery of the Egyptians and all the while, as it were, the promises lie dormant, waiting for the rise of a man named Moses with whom that covenant would be confirmed again. But God's ways are not always our ways, and indeed it was his purpose for his people to languish in Egypt for 400 years, and his purposes haven't changed much today Because the Lord says, if you suffer with him, you will be glorified with him. Then God calls Moses after that long, dark night of Israel's soul, sends him to Egypt to liberate the people of Israel, takes them out through the Red Sea, brings them through a land where they have food from the sky and water from the rock, and in three months they arrive at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai... The covenant through Moses with Israel is established and reconfirmed in terms that are very much like what Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob got. Virtually all of Exodus 19 to 34 is concerned with the making of that covenant. And I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. I want to do three things with you this morning. One is to give you an overview of the establishing of the covenant as we walk together through these chapters, 19 to 34. Second, then I want to go back and draw out of these chapters the divine promises and the human conditions that are laid down in the covenant. And then thirdly, I want you to see how it all points to Jesus and comes to a climax and a confirmation in Christ and his church. First, then, let's take a walk together through these pages of Exodus 19 to 34. And I'll point out the highlights as we go, and you can flip your pages or just listen, whichever is easier for you. We'll begin at verse 3 of chapter 19. Moses goes up for the first time into Mount Sinai, and there God announces to him in verses 5 and 6 the general terms of the covenant. If you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own special possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Then uh, Moses goes down to the people, reports to them these things. And in verse eight, they take the covenant upon themselves and say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They accept their side of the bargain. Then Moses returns to the Lord, and in verse 9, the Lord says that he's coming himself to speak within earshot of the people so that they can hear his side of the covenant stated in his own voice. And in Exodus 19, 
verses 10 to 15, God instructs Moses how to get the people ready. Make sure they get consecrated. Tell them not to come up on the mountain, but to draw near lest they break through and perish. And God himself then undertakes to address them. Chapter 20, verses 1 to 17 are God's words in the hearing of the people, and they are the Ten Commandments. Then, in verses 18 and 19, it becomes evident that the people are so terrified at the voice of God that they say to Moses, You speak to us and we will hear, but let not God speak to us lest we die. And so Moses withdraws from the people, goes up to the thick darkness at the foot of the mountain, and receives personally from the Lord the rest of the ordinances which are recorded in chapters 21 through 23. God doesn't speak those directly to the people. The people have withdrawn themselves. It's too terrifying to hear the Lord's voice. So those ordinances are given to Moses in chapters 21 to 23. At the beginning of chapter 24, God tells Moses at the foot of the mountain there to go get Aaron and uh, his sons and the 70 elders and to come up on the mountain. But before Moses does that, in verse 3, he reports to the people the ordinances that had been given to him in chapters 21 to 23. And again, the people say, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. They accept the covenant. Upon themselves. Then Moses writes them all down in a book, it says in verse 4. And then something very solemn and strange happens. He builds an altar, sacrifices oxen, divides them and the blood in two, throws half the blood on the altar and probably on the book of the covenant lying on the altar, and throws the rest of the blood out over the people. As if I were standing here dipping my hand and just throwing it out like that. Probably what this signifies is that the people are solemnly taking upon themselves an oath to keep the covenant and saying, in effect, so be done to us if we don't keep the covenant. May we be cut in half and our blood be on our own heads. So the the spreading of the blood of the covenant out over the people is a solemn accepting of the terms of the covenant. So it seems. Then in chapter 24, verses 9 to 10, Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders go partway up the mountain and have a feast and behold the glory of the Lord together. Then God calls Moses further up, as C.S. Lewis would say, further in, verse 12, and God says that he wants to give him there the tables of stone written by God himself. So Moses went up into the cloud and he remained there 40 days and 40 nights. And everything in chapters 25 to 31 is what Moses received on the mountain, namely instructions for how to build the tabernacle and how to prepare the priests for their ministry. So all those chapters 25 to 31 are instructions to Moses on the mountain about this holy place where Israel would meet God for the next centuries. When he was done speaking, God gave Moses the two tables of the testimony, according to chapter 31, verse 18. This is the things you see in the pictures all the time, with Moses holding them in his hand. Two tables. They were written on the front and the back, and they contained the Ten Commandments, as we'll see in just a moment, where it's made explicit later on. 
I think the significance of having tables written by God's own finger, as it were, is a way of saying to the people, here's my signed document that I will hold my side of the covenant. I've written it myself, and now I hand it to you for your signature, as it were. But during those 40 days on the mountain, they had already broken the covenant. Aaron had gone down from the place where God had told him to stay. He had acceded to the wishes of the people. He had built a golden calf and they had forsaken the covenant of the Lord before it had even been certified in writing by the Lord. It says in chapter 32, verse eight, they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. Now, Moses, here's the beauty of this man. With all his heart and with all his soul intercedes for this people. God was ready to wipe them off the face of the earth and begin again with Moses. And Moses intercedes for them. And then he comes down having received a reprieve from the Lord. And in verse 19 of chapter 32, he smashes those tables on the ground in the front of the people. Signifying, surely you've broken the covenant. It is over. God's finished except that he had received by prayer and by mercy a reprieve. And therefore, the sons of Levi only kill 3,000. A plague comes upon the people, but the nation as a whole is spared through Moses' prayer and God's mercy. And now the question, what happens to the covenant? It's shattered. God is angry with his people. Can there be a covenant again with promises? If this had been a covenant of works or a covenant built on strict justice alone, Israel would be done for. Done for with no hope. But to show that the covenant is based on grace, God renews the covenant with words that are incomparably merciful. In chapter 34. In verse 1, he tells Moses, all right, make two new tables of stone. We'll start all over again. And then listen to this revelation of who God is behind the covenant to Moses in verses 6 and 7. God reveals himself and the basis of the covenant with these words. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Then in verse 9, look what Moses does. On the basis of this revelation of God's mercy, Moses pleads mercy. Pardon our iniquity. And our sin and take us for thine inheritance. In other words, start over again. Give us the promise of the inheritance again. And the Lord in incomparable mercy in verse 10 says, behold, I make a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been wrought in all the earth or in any nation. And then the last meeting with Moses on the mountain 
concludes in chapter 34, verses 27 to 28, with these words. The Lord said to Moses, write these words in accordance with the words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. And he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant, the ten commandments. And Moses came down with his face shining like the sun because he'd been with the Lord fasting for 40 days. And the rest of the book of Exodus is just a description of the obedience of the people when they built the tabernacle. So now you've had a survey of how the covenant was established. Now we need to ask more specifically, what were the divine promises and the human conditions that were laid down in this covenant? What did God require and what did God promise? Let's look at the promises first. I see at least five and I'll just mention them quickly. First, in Exodus 19, verse 5, three of them are found right here. So if you want to turn back to Exodus 19, we'll see three of them in these two verses. The first one is, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples of the earth, for all the earth is mine. I think the reason that God said that all the earth is his was so that when he tells Israel that they are his special possession, they'll know it means more than the general care and authority that he has over the world. It means a very special, close, intimate possession. They will have blessings beyond all the other nations. They will be God's prized possession if they keep his covenant. Second promise, verse 6 of Exodus 19. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Wasn't the most striking privilege of the priests that they had access to God in an intimate sense? They were the ones who worked in the tabernacle and could draw near to the Lord and go into the holy place once a year. In other words, God was promising to the whole nation that they could have intimacy with him. If they kept the covenant and they were called a kingdom of priests or a royal priesthood to signify how great the privilege was, because it's not just access to anybody. It's access to the king, to the king of the universe. And every one of you to bring it up into our time are priests to God because this came to fulfillment in the church and the priesthood of all believers is a good Baptist doctrine and a good Jewish doctrine, if they but knew it. Third promise. Verse 6, you shall be a holy nation. Holy in two senses, probably. Set apart for the Lord and his purposes, but not just set apart. Set apart as a nation bearing the character of the one to whom they are set apart. You shall be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. So the promise here is the stunning promise that if you keep the covenant, you will have the all satisfying privilege of sharing my likeness, my character, my moral excellence. 
Fourth, you have to flip over a couple of chapters to chapter 23 of Exodus. The fourth promise of the covenant is found here in verse 22 of chapter 23 in these words. If you hearken attentively to his voice, Moses' voice, and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Like the cat who bites into a mouse and finds out that it's a dog's paw. If you tamper with Israel, you deal with God. Those who belong to the Lord and keep his covenant have God fighting for them against their enemies. I think that's probably what's meant in Exodus 34.10. Flip over there because the last promise is also found in 34. Exodus 34.10, where God makes this amazing promise as he establishes the covenant the second time. I will do marvels such as have not been wrought in all the earth or in any nation and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. In other words, I'm not just going to be a German shepherd fighting off this cat. I am going to do marvels for you. I'm going to stun the world with what I do for my people. And then fifth and finally, chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. And this is the foundation of everything. If this weren't part of the covenant, none of those other promises could ever come true for Israel or anybody. Namely, God promises to be merciful and gracious and forgiving. This is the sweetest gospel promise I can imagine. And the fact that it is given on Mount Sinai instead of Mount Calvary, and the fact that it's a preface to the Ten Commandments instead of the Book of Romans is simply evidence that what Christ taught and what Moses taught are one glorious message of harmonious grace. Listen to this foundation word at the second establishing of the covenant. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's good news. That's gospel. Right in the heart of the Mosaic Covenant. So the fifth and final promise of the Mosaic Covenant is that God will deal mercifully with Israel and forgive her sins if she keeps the covenant. Let me summarize these for you now and then talk about those conditions. Five promises he holds out. One, Israel will be God's own special possession. Two, Israel will be a kingdom of priests or a royal priesthood. Three, Israel will be a holy nation. Four, God will fight for Israel and oppose her enemies and protect her. And fifth, God will treat Israel with grace and mercy and forgive her sins. Now, all of those benefits depend on Israel's keeping the covenant. Verse 5 of Exodus 19. If you will obey my voice... And keep my covenant, then you shall experience all these blessings. 
And so we need to ask in the second place, not just about the divine promises, but the human conditions. What did Israel really have to do in order to benefit from these promises? One thing is clear at the very outset. Sinless perfection was not a condition of the covenant. The Mosaic Covenant does not teach that if you commit a sin, you forfeit the blessings of the covenant. On the contrary, it says the Lord forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. The foundation of the covenant is mercy, is grace, is forgiveness. And therefore, when Exodus 19.5 says that Israel must obey the voice of the Lord and keep his covenant, it cannot mean that Israel must earn her blessings by working for them. It means that they must keep themselves in an attitude in which forgiveness can be received. Now, what's that attitude? What is the attitude described by Moses in which we will be constant beneficiaries of the mercy of the covenant? One answer is given in chapter 20, verses 5 and 6, right in the heart of the Ten Commandments. The Lord says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who... Hate me. But showing steadfast love, or as your King James says, showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There it is. Israel upholds the covenant by loving God. By refusing to let anything find the place of affection in their heart where God belongs. And out of that kind of love for God flows obedience because you always pursue what you value. You always pursue what you value. And so this obedience that is spoken of here is not an earning of God's grace It's the evidence that we love the God of grace. God is not loved when you put yourself or Israelites put themselves in the place of a workman trying to earn wages from a heavenly employer. That is not what is meant by love me, love me. When God says that love for him is the condition of the covenant. It's the same thing you would mean if you said to me, the condition for benefiting your vacation, benefiting from your vacation, is that you must enjoy the sunsets. That's the condition. That's what it means to love God. Enjoy God. Delight in God. Set your affections on God. Have God filling your heart with his glory. It's unthinkable 
utterly unthinkable that the command to love God should be a command to his people to earn blessings from him. On the contrary, when you think it through, and I commend this to you this afternoon, if you have some free meditative moments, when you think it through, does not the command to love God, a God who is gracious and forgiving, always imply trusting God? Can you love God and say, I don't trust you? The only way to benefit from forgiveness offered is to trust the forgiver. I don't know any other way to receive forgiveness than faith in the forgiver. The only way to benefit from a gracious promise is to trust the promiser. If you don't trust him, it won't benefit you in the least. Again and again in the Old Testament, it is made plain that the root of the rebellion of the Israelites in the wilderness was unbelief, lack of faith. I've got written here in my notes a text from the Old Testament where that's made explicit. For example, Psalm 78:22, where God says that he's angry and his anger inflamed against the people in the wilderness, quote, because they had no faith in God. And did not trust his saving power. That's what lies at the root of the rebellion at the foot of Mount Sinai. Hebrews, in the New Testament, puts it like this. The generation fell in the wilderness and did not inherit the land because of unbelief. Or chapter 4, verse 2 says, The message which they received at Sinai did not benefit them because it did not meet with Faith, not works. It was not intended to meet with works. It was intended to meet with faith. So there are three reasons why I say the Mosaic Covenant requires one fundamental thing, faith in God. First reason, because it was renewed in chapter 34 on the basis of grace. God says, all right, I will renew this covenant. And here's the foundation of it. I am a Lord, your God, merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the foundation of the covenant. And since the only way to receive forgiveness is faith, the foundation of the covenant is grace to be received by faith. Second, the condition of the covenant is said to be love. You should love the Lord your God. And love is the very opposite of trying to work for an employer and earn wages from him. And third, numerous Old Testament and New Testament texts teach that the root of the rebellion of Israel was her unbelief. And therefore, the obedience required in the Mosaic Covenant is the obedience which comes from Faith and no other obedience. It is the same obedience that was required in the Abrahamic covenant when God said to Abraham in Genesis 22:18, by your descendants shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. It's the same obedience required from us in the new covenant Hebrews 5, 9 says of Christ being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey 
him. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the covenant that Christ purchased with his blood are all various expressions of one great covenant of grace with one grand condition required of every human being in every dispensation, namely, to use the words of the Apostle Paul, faith working through love or the obedience that comes from faith. And that brings me to one final question briefly. And the Mosaic Covenant doesn't answer this question. The Old Testament needs an epilogue. The question is, how can so much mercy flow to wicked Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai? How can it be that the judge will say not guilty and send guilty people out of the courtroom? That's unjust. How can his righteousness stand and have so much pity and forgiveness on iniquity, transgression and sin as though his honor had not been betrayed? No answer. Surely the blood of bulls and goats does not take away sin or repair the injury that we have done to the glory of God through sin. It's all in the future from their standpoint, the answer to that question. And Isaiah saw it more clearly than anybody in the Old Testament. And he said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him. The iniquity of us all. How can a just God under the Mosaic Covenant dispense grace and forgiveness so freely? Answer, he looked forward to the coming of his son and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, whose death repaired all the injury that all the sins of the elect had ever done to God from Adam to the end of the age. The covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the new covenant, all were purchased for us with all their promises by the death of Jesus Christ when he came. Now, I want you to have a fresh glimpse of Jesus today as the confirmer of this covenant. And so I just want to make two final comments. Things I want you to rivet on your mind with the prayer that God would use them to make warm your love for the Lord today. So that on this third Sunday of Advent, as you look forward to the celebration of Christmas, there would be a flame in your heart of affection for God and what he's done for us. Here's the first thing. Think on this. Every forgiven sin from Adam to the end of the age was laid on the innocent Christ and crushed him to hell. And he accepted it willingly for the glory of his father and for your eternal life and joy without raising an objection or grumbling one minute. Second thing I want you to think about, if you trust him, and how can you not? If you trust him and follow him in the obedience of faith, you are the heirs of the Mosaic covenant as well as the Abrahamic covenant. It's made very plain in First Peter. You are God's special possession. 
You are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. God fights for you and opposes your enemies. And to you, from now and forever, He is the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, slow to anger, forgiving your sins, your iniquities, and your transgressions. Oh, that we might love the Lord Jesus together this Advent season. For no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered up into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love.